I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Last week, a bombshell report revealed decades of mishandled sexual abuse within the Southern Baptist denomination. For years, the report shows Southern Baptist leaders ignored reports of abuse and swept the allegations under the rug. Later this hour, we'll check in with a survivor to hear how she's reacting to the report. We'll dig into the SBC's presence here in Nashville and get a sense of the fallout so far with a reporter, a former Southern Baptist, and a theologian. But first, it's time for At Us. Every Thursday, we're taking time to read the comments so you don't have to. You can at us anytime on Twitter at This Is Nashville, on Instagram at This Is Nashville underscore WPLN, and at WPLN News on Facebook. Joining me now with a look back at our past week is our digital lead, Anna Gallegos Cannon. Hey, Anna. Hey, Khalil. Glad to be back in the studio as always. Glad to have you back. So, what are our listeners talking about this week? So we had a really heavy show on Tuesday where we invited local students to react to the recent spate of shootings here and across the country. Someone on Twitter who goes by at Post Jawline took issue with the fact that we brought up the recent uh, local shootings at the MTSU campus. They wrote, this was not a school shooting. NPR should know better than to equate Uvalde with a targeted act of violence that happened to take place on a school campus between people arguing them. MTSU students had already left campus for summer break by then. To clarify, we did not refer to it as a school shooting. We brought it up because our goal was to check in with these students. And that tragedy was right here in our region. Plus, the shooting happened in our guest, um, Alexandra Job's campus. She's currently a freshman, or she was a freshman at MTSU, and we wanted to hear how she was feeling about the recent tragedy. We do have a correction to make, though. In the script, we incorrectly identified the victim of that shooting, Hassani Brewer, as an MTSU freshman. He wasn't attending the university. It was an honest mistake, and we've made the correction on our website, too. Hassani, whose friends knew him as Sonny, was a 2021 gra graduate of Riverdale High School, which was having its graduation that night on the MTSU campus, where Sonny was killed. It's really quite awful. Our guest Alexandra spoke about how she checked in with her friends at that time to make sure that they were okay, and how she was feeling guilty because she wasn't in the area. One person lost their life in the shooting, but you know it doesn't really have to be a high number of casualties for community members to really be impacted and feel something because of an act of violence. Yeah, but all of us to be impacted and feel something because of acts of violence. So earlier this week, after our rebroadcast of a show about natural burial, a listener named Howard left us the voicemail. I've gotten really, really worn out because of what's going on in Ukraine and the murder of women and children. All those kids getting killed in Texas last week. I'm really, really tired of hearing shows about death. If you could do more life-affirming stories, that would be a wonderful thing. Howard, I would 100% agree with you that the news recently has been quite exhausting. Mm -hmm. There's some difficult topics that unfortunately we cannot avoid talking about on the show because of you know how it impacts people here in the area. It's tough, though, when these awful things, you know, happen back to back. Yeah. However, we do strive to cover lighter topics, and our inbox is always open to listeners who have good news to share. So let us know what you'd like to cover. We also have some more lighthearted episodes in our archive. We had a show about strawberry season and, of course, Nashville SC at the new Geodis Park and one about local comic book artists after Free Comic Book Day. 
Yes, and honestly, there have been a lot more episodes, but you know, we only have so much time on the air, and I can't name them all. But spoiler alert for the future: uh, we do have an especially lighthearted episode coming up next week, all about pets, especially our cats and dogs. Cats and dogs. I wonder if my three cats at home will be listening. You know, they can make a cameo. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Then, okay, guaranteed, they're ready for it. They're ready for the spotlight. So, Anna, is there anything else? Yes. uh, One of our listeners named Bailey added us on Twitter with a kind of weird out-of-the-box question that she thought her friends at This Is Nashville could help her answer. Okay. Uh, The question was, what is the, quote, new ugly apartment complex that blocks the view of the city on um, I-65 North? Hmm. I mean... I feel like I've seen a lot of ugly buildings. <laughs> so did you find it? Yes. After a lot of searching, I finally found it. It's actually called um, the Haven at the Gulch and is being built on the I-65 and I-40 split. Someone named Joel Rakes actually shared a photo of it under construction on Twitter in April, and it went semi-viral among locals. So a lot of people are actually really upset that it blocks the view of downtown if you're driving in from South Nashville. Is it really that ugly? So, I mean, beauty subjective, mm-hmm. but it really, really makes me want to play Tetris when I see that building. Oh, wow. Okay, I'll have to be sure to check it out. I also love that Bailey knew she could count on her pals here at This Is Nashville. Of course, and I will share that photo on Twitter so everyone can see and make a decision for themselves. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks to our digital lead, Anna Gallegos Cannon, for this roundup. Anna, we'll see you next week, same time, same place. Of course, and our listeners know where to find me. Don't forget to add us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and let's keep the comments coming. Also, fill out our community survey to let us know what topics you want us to cover at thisisnashville.org. It's super easy and quick and helps us produce shows with your needs and interests in mind. Last week, a scathing report unveiled decades of abuse within Southern Baptist churches and systemic mishandling by senior leaders of the Southern Baptist Convention. Tweet us your questions at This Is Nashville. There's a lot to cover, so don't go away. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Last year, delegates to the Southern Baptist Convention's National Gathering here in Nashville voted to proceed with a third-party investigation to look into allegations of sexual abuse and how they were handled. Last week, that report finally dropped. In a whopping 400 pages, the bombshell report unravels decades of abuse carried out by people who worked or volunteered in Southern Baptist churches and systemic mishandling of the allegations by SBC leadership. Survivors were ignored, silenced. And the abuse went on. My first guest is a survivor herself who once attended the First Baptist Church in Jacksonville, Florida. Tiffany Thigpen, thank you for joining us and being open to sharing your story. Let me begin. Thank you for having me on. Really appreciate you being here. Let me begin by asking, how are you? Um, Heavy. This is a really heavy burden. We've been carrying it for obviously a really, really long time. And it's a little surreal that people are finally taking notice and listening. You know, tell me, what was your first reaction when the report came out? 
Um, I, first of all, I, I knew, and, and many of us as survivors knew that we had to take um, measures to protect ourselves as we read the report um, in, in order to be able to make sure that we were healthy and stable um, as we found the results. But I don't think we were really prepared to learn that they all along were keeping a list. Um, I think that was the blow that we weren't quite expecting. The rest of it we knew. Um, I mean, we knew that there indeed had been a thwarting of any kind of changes or protections for us. We knew that there were certain people that were misinforming the rest of the people as to how things were being handled. But um, knowing that all along they were vilifying us for asking for a list and saying that it couldn't be done, and yet they were keeping it themselves from the very same time period we began asking for it in 2007, they began documenting cases. How did you feel about that when you discovered that they had this secret list? Robbed would be a really good word. Um, a, a little bit gutted, too, because for, for us, the reason that we continue to use our voices and we continue to raise these alarms is so that other people are not harmed so that other people don't experience what we experienced. So in that moment, you realize that because they had this list and they were keeping track, but not doing anything and not warning anyone, which is why we wanted a database, um, is to be able to warn others and, and for other churches to be able to look and see if somebody has been credibly accused. Because a lot of times it's multiple accusations before charges come, if charges come. Um, so, it was extremely hard to digest the fact, and in fact, it's indigestible, that they actively were watching and allowing people to continue to be harmed. One person on that list was Daryl Gilliard. With your permission, I'd like to go back to yes. 1991 when you reported to your church's leadership that you were sexually assaulted by then visiting preacher Daryl Gilliard. How old were you at the time? I was a senior in high school. Um, he began grooming me on a spring tour, which was uh, the year prior. So um, when I met him and he began the grooming process, it was 17. Um, when the attack happened, I was just outside of my um, 18th birthday. I had literally just the month before turned 18. He did not know my age. He didn't care about my age. He never asked, nor did he know. Um, but I was a student in the high school department of our church, and I was, you know, coming upon graduation when it happened. Tell me more. What was your relationship with the church like at that time in your life? I have been raised Southern Baptist my entire life. So since uh, before I could even remember, I was in a Southern Baptist church raised by in a Christian home. Um, our family was always a part of First Baptist Church of Jacksonville under first Homer Lindsay and then eventually Jerry Vines. So when, when the attack actually happened, um, I had so much respect for the man, uh, Daryl Gilliard, who attacked me and also knew that he was beloved uh, nationally um, within the Southern Baptist Convention and all around um, Christian circles. He was an evangelist and speaker and was on television and Falwell radio hour and all of these things. So he was a beloved and supposed to be trusted member of the Christian community. Um, Jerry Vines was um, my pastor that I grew up with, and he had mentored Daryl Gilliard. In fact, he pulled him right out of our very own church and saw potential in him and sent him off to seminary. Um, and Paige Patterson and Jerry Vines were both mentoring him and helping him along. At the time, I thought he was safe. 
Um, what I did not know is that he already was a predator. In fact, the years prior, so this happened in 1991, and he was in seminary in the late 80s. Um, while he was at seminary, he was known on campus as being a predator. He had been um, pastoring at five different churches in those prior years that he had been fired from for misappropriate act or inappropriate activities with um, students, with staff, with um, women of the church, and most of those being young college girls. Um, so he already had a predatory status, and everyone knew that he was dangerous. And what is most gutting about my case is that Jerry Vines and Paige Patterson knew about those charges and those incidences and had silenced anyone who stood against him. Did you know about that history when he first came to the church? I had absolutely no idea. This was long before internet and, and uh, you know, social media and all the news outlets being so readily available. So I had no idea of even the talk of his predatory status at that time. Um, they knew and they kept it secret. Now, you said that an adult member of the church warned you about Gilliard's motivations. What did they tell you? Well, it was actually not a member of our church. It was someone that I was in contact contact with at Daryl Gilliard's church. So Daryl was an evangelist and traveled, but he had a home-based church, which was Victory Baptist in Texas. And I had gotten close with um, what was then his music minister um, through relationship and through just talking back and forth. Daryl had actually introduced us to each other. And when Daryl was in town in Jacksonville prior to the attack happening, um, this music minister basically started feeling weird about the way Daryl was interacting with me. And sadly, um, he confronted Daryl about it first without talking to me first because he, I guess, wanted to address him directly, but later called my home to warn my mother to make sure that I wasn't alone with him in any, you know, form or fashion. I was already away from the house, did not have a cell phone. So my mother had no way to get that warning to me. And that was the very night the attack happened. So is there anything else you'd like to share about that incident? Um, just the fact that, you know, overall, one of the things that we have continued to draw to light is the fact that we know that pastors, um, for whatever their reason is, continue to protect the church and assume that they need to make sure that there's no scandal by reporting a predator in their midst. So instead of sounding warning alarms to let other people know, they allow the predator to maybe move to another church quietly and they never warn the congregation that there has been either an allegation or an attack or, you know, molestation, whatever it is with children whatever the case may have been, they don't warn someone and then they just move along. And that's what happened to me. And, you know, looking back, I really obviously wish that Jerry Vines would not have asked Daryl Gilliard to travel with our youth group, knowing that he was a dangerous person. If he had not done that, it would have certainly saved me from being attacked. But what's important to know is that because predators act the way they do, they don't stop at one. So he had prayed before, he got to me and then he continued to get to other young people and women, which is, um, you know, has been shown through the media and also in his arrest record um, continuing forward. So I wish pastors would stop protecting the church because the church is the people. You know, that was part of your experience, right? When, when you went yes. to SBC leader Jerry Vines at the time, 
What did he tell you when you told him about that incident? Um, the, the first thing, looking back, my mom and I have often talked about it because my mother was with me. He was not shocked. So I was sitting before him. I remember being, I was a teenage girl and I was broken and I was shaking and I was um, feeling a lot of shame. I was crying. It was not very well put together as I began to tell him what happened. I was still in shock personally. I was still trying to reconcile the man that had been mentoring me and that I had looked up to with the man who attacked me and whom I saw evil in his eyes. Um, and I, just to note, I had to fight him off. And, um, and I mean, we're talking, you know, what probably tunnels down into minutes felt like an eternity. Um, so I saw evil in his eyes. He changed his whole persona changed. Um, and I'm trying to describe this to this, my pastor that I've grown up with that I also respect and revere. And I'm telling the most awful details. Um, and in fact, I probably didn't tell all details because I was embarrassed. Um, but knowing that I had been attacked, he was not shocked. He didn't have the normal reaction that he should have had. And, and now we know that that's because he already knew that there were already other situations, which the same behavior had happened. Um, but the very first words to me were one, who else knows about this, which my mother and I said, you know, we had not told anyone. He was the first person that we came to. And then secondly, he said, you know, this would be really embarrassing for you if people found out. So it's really best that you just let us handle it. Um, and that's exactly what we did. We put it in their hands. But the shame that I walked out with from that one statement, once I left his office, carried with me and still in, in parts of, of me carry with me today. I understand that this is very hard for you to recount and to tell us, and I, I appreciate your candor and being open with us. And you mentioned that, you know, Daryl was fired from several churches after being accused of sexual abuse. Tell me, how does knowing that really make you feel? What does that tell us about the depth of the issue at SBC? Well, it is exactly part of the issue. It's part of the heart of why we are trying to get this database and to get some accountability um, we, we aren't trying to change their theology or, you know, their religious polity or any of those things. We just want to make sure that there is accountability. There is a reporting system so that when a pastor is fired or a youth minister or a music minister, a children's teacher, whatever it is, when they are fired from a position of leadership within the church for um, molestation, rape, sexual abuse, and that includes adult congregants as well, because there's a power imbalance there. Mm. Um, when they are involved in those activities, they have to be held to account. They don't get to be fired and then continue to move on and just move into another church and ministry. There has to be a, a moment in which, first of all, the police are involved. There also has to be um, standing with the abused versus the abuser, because what we see commonly within the church is that this pastor might have been fired from that, but they don't warn the next church that hires him. And in fact, a lot of times we even find out that they focus more on what he was good at. So he was a good preacher. He brought a lot of people to the congregation. Um, you know, he grew the church. He, they focus on the positive things because they're afraid to mention what they've let him get away with, which is the abuses or even domination, power, 
tactics that might have been used while he was leading at the church. Um, so these are things that matter. These details matter. We have to hold people to account, and it is biblical to do so. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Kaliole Colonna. We're talking this hour about last week's report revealing decades of sexual abuse allegations within Southern Baptist churches. Are you a member of a Southern Baptist church? What is your response to the recent report? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. My next guest has been reporting on this. Liam Adams is the religion reporter at the Tennessean. Liam, thank you for being with us today. Thanks for having me. So I, I want to back up a little bit so we can give our listeners a better understanding of the Southern Baptist Convention. You've been covering this story and other matters related to the Southern Baptist Convention for a while. Can you give us a breakdown of the SBC and how it works? Yeah, so the Southern Baptist Convention um, sort of essentially refers to a two-day annual meeting when voting delegates, uh, thousands of them that represent local Southern Baptist churches, um, they gather for two days and make a series of policy decisions about the denomination. These voting delegates are called messengers. Mm. Um, the other important sort of related to the report, another important piece to note is the executive committee. That is um, a entity that makes decisions for the SBC outside of that two-day annual meeting. The executive committee is comprised of a uh, about 30 staff members and a board of 86 elected representatives um, from across the country. The staff members of the executive committee are based here in Nashville, um, and they work uh, out of the, uh, there's a building in, in Nashville where they work out of. Um, the last thing that's important to note is that there's some sort of uh, overlap between the messenger body and the executive committee. Um, that is through the, uh, the Southern Baptist Convention president, who is elected by the messengers, mm -hmm. who also has a de facto seat on the executive committee. So uh, the report, it talked about some of the Southern Baptist Convention presidents because they have a seat on the executive committee. So let's back up. Who are the messengers? And more importantly, what type of power do they hold? So the messengers, um, they are they're sort of the voting delegates, and they are seen as the uh, sort of ultimate decision maker, the final authority within the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, they make decisions and uh, sort of uh, recommendations for the executive committee to then uh, take action as well as other uh, Southern Baptist Convention affiliated agencies such as their mission boards, their seminaries, and the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, which is also based in Nashville. Mm -hmm. You know, it was actually last year's at last year's meeting here in Nashville that these messengers voted to proceed with a third party into investigation into allegations of sexual abuse, which ultimately resulted in last week's report. What were your takeaways with that report? The report. Um, so I'll just kind of describe what the uh, report was. It contains the findings of this investigation that the investigators were tasked with looking into um, how Southern Baptist Convention leaders have handled claims of abuse, have treated abuse victims, and 
if they have been resistant to abuse reforms between uh, January of 2000 to June of 2021. There were a lot of questions before the report's release of what it would find, and um, by and large, the findings of the investigation were uh, shocking and surprising to many people. Uh, some of the sort of ones that caught headlines included uh, a sort of allegation of assault against a former SBC president, uh, Johnny Hunt. Mm. And uh, also another findings was about this list that you had, you were talking with Tiffany about, which was a list that um, executive committee staff had secretly sort of maintained of names of ministers accused of abuse. Uh, they were publicly reported cases. Um, so it's not like these were cases not technically known to the public, but at the same time, these leaders, while they were maintaining this list, were telling abuse survivors that they could not create a centralized database while they were sort of essentially doing the same thing the, themselves. Something else the findings discovered was that SBC executive committee, they refused to act on these widespread allegations of sexual abuse over the years. What is their role exactly? So the executive committee, um, the the well, the report it primarily delves into the actions of a uh, select few uh, staff members who work for the executive committee. Okay. So they, this is their full time job, and you know, uh, a lot of the examples we saw come up in the report is that these staff members received reports of abuse happening at a you know individual Southern Baptist church and chose not to act on that report similarly um, you know the the report outlines this pattern of behavior in which abuse survivors are recommending uh, reform initiatives and that um, the leaders, are are being resistant to those those recommendations. Now, I understand the committee wasn't too keen on having the report done in the first place. So, Liam, what obstacles stood in the way of this report? What did it take to make this happen? It was it was it was a lot of obstacles. There were um, it was a sort of contentious vote um, at the annual meeting in June 2021 when the messengers approved a motion that sort of set the parameters for this investigation. And then in the fall, there were some additional uh, debate amongst the executive committee members. So these are those elected representatives about whether to waive attorney client privilege. Mm -hmm. So this is um, sort of privileged uh, material and correspondence between uh, executive committee staff and the longtime law firm for the executive committee. It's a Nashville-based law firm called Gunther Jordan and Price. Ultimately, the executive committee members voted to waive privilege, which allowed this investigative firm to uh, see some of these privileged uh, memos between the law firm and executive committee staff. I know they had a meeting this morning. I'm sure this report came up. What happened in that meeting? The meeting was related to uh, some 
motions and recommendations that will be made at the upcoming SBC annual meeting, which is on uh, the messengers in the annual meeting will start uh, on June 14th in Anaheim. And so that's a lot of what we're sort of looking toward um, in this next week of how Southern Baptists are preparing for the annual meeting. The executive committee met this morning to uh, make a series of decisions that were sort of passed along to them by a task force of how the Southern Baptist uh, as a whole can can respond to this report and, and the findings of it. So uh, very basically, the executive committee decided this morning to recommend to the messengers to approve an allocation of funding for future abuse reform work. Mm. And so that is one of a series of recommendations that the messengers will vote on in Anaheim related again to future abuse reform work. What will you be watching for in that meeting in two weeks? A lot of things. Um, the, the Yesterday, the task force had released a series of recommendations around abuse reform work, and, and that will be one of the biggest things to watch out for at the annual meeting is how the messengers will vote on these recommendations to take this report and do something about it. Um, well, there will also be a, uh, a election for a new SBC president, um, and that will that relates to the issue of abuse reform because it's you know basically. Who are you electing as a leader and what are the stands they're taking on this issue and how it should be addressed? Before I let you go, I want to know, what have Southern Baptist pastors here in Nashville, how have they been reacting to this report? So Southern Baptist pastors in Nashville and um, really all around the country uh, have responded with, with shock and sorrow, um, you know, I think there's there's also the question of 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 how survivors feel about how pastors have responded, but I've seen a sort of um, willingness to respond to this report. Um, last year, when this investigation was approved, it was an overwhelming vote by the messengers to approve this investigation. So that is a um, sort of illustration of perhaps the majority sentiment among the messenger body of how this issue should be addressed moving forward. But we will see in Anaheim how they vote on these recommendations and also on resolutions. Resolutions are non-binding but they're sort of an expression of the messenger body and the beliefs of the, that collection of messengers. And so um, I think we're, that will sort of offer us a sort of quantifiable sense of how Southern Baptists are feeling about the sort of very shocking findings of this report. Liam Adams is the religion reporter at the Tennessean. Liam, thanks for being with us again, and thank you for your reporting. Thanks for having me. 
We have to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll take a deeper look at how this kind of systemic abuse and cover up could have happened within Southern Baptist denomination. Are you a member of the Southern Baptist Church? What's your response to the recent report? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. It's been a week of soul-searching for Southern Baptists across the country. After a scathing 400-page report revealed decades of SBC leadership silencing survivors of sexual abuse. And since that report dropped, SBC leaders recently revealed a previous secret list of 700 people within the church who have been accused. We've been talking about the report, but now we'd like to get a better understanding of how this could have happened. I'm joined now by former Southern Baptist, Dr. Ashley David Gavilla, Davis Gavilla, pardon me. Ashley, thank you for being here. Thanks so much for having me, Khalil. So, so Ashley, you were pretty active in the church from an early age. Tell me about your experience. Yeah, so um, my family joined Southern Baptist churches in New Mexico. Um, let's see, probably late 80s, early 90s. And um, from there, I you know, was in youth group, Southern Baptist youth group, went to college, was really active in the Baptist student union, um, ended up doing like mission trips <laughs> with the North American Mission Board mm-hmm. and the International Mission Board. Um, and then uh, went on to work at a Southern Baptist church there in Nashville and eventually worked at Lifeway Christian Resources. So, uh, yeah, I, I had a, a pretty decent stint in the SBC. A lifetime. You know, <laughs> yeah. tell me, when did your first experience with discrimination in the church happen? Ooh, um, <laughs> that's a great question. So, my earliest memory um, was with, uh, I'd gone forward on a Sunday morning. I must have been like, you know, nine or 10 years old. Mm-hmm. And um, the woman at the front that received me at the altar call, um, I just have this vivid memory of looking at the blue carpet and crying because she was telling me that um, that I and my family would go to hell if we believed anything um, that our Mormon family had taught us. Mm-hmm. Um, so from the get-go, it was kind of this uh, us versus them that um, was implied uh, both explicitly and Um, implicitly. Um, And then, you know, I, I wanted to be accepted. So youth group (laughs) kind of became the, my, my place as, as the uh, sort of outcast of my teen years. Um, Started noticing that they wanted me to like help and do things and lead. Um, And I was like, oh, I'm I'm a woman or I'm I'm a, I'm a girl, you know, and uh, noticed that any other women in the church that happened to be leading, um, they could be directors or, you know, that that could be their title, but they couldn't be pastor. They couldn't be minister. Hmm. Um, That was sort of where I started kind of wondering like, oh, well, why is that? Um, And of course, from there, um, I have too many stories, (laughs) too many stories to list. And so Um, as we said, you spent a lifetime 
in this 30 years. Tell me what led you to leave the SBC after 30 years? Mm. It just became too much. Um, I, <laughs> you know, a lifetime of basically being made to feel less than because of my gender, um, various other personality quirks or things about me, um, being able to like lead, but only so far, um, even being like passed up for promotions because I didn't have the right education and then trying to get the right education. And it still wasn't enough. Like it was just never enough. Like I was never enough. There was always something about me that was not enough. Um, and then once I started uh, doing more of my healing work from my own abuse throughout childhood, and um, I started learning about systemic injustices, I started learning about collective trauma Um and that uh, that started to really change things for me. Um, so while I was uncomfortable, um, I I had to stay <laughs> because it was my livelihood. It was my paycheck. It was my um, my life, you know. But uh, as I got stronger in myself and like healing from uh, various traumas, I started realizing that it was I wasn't the only one and. Um, there were lots and lots of women in particular leaving the church. And I started wanting to investigate that. Um, and uh, what really, once I started listening to the oppressed and marginalized folks around me, um, <laughs> I'm, everything's just sort of blurring together for me because there's just been so much in the past, like 10 years, especially as I began to recognize um severe, severe injustices against people of color, Black and Indigenous folks especially, um, seeing the effects of uh, harmful business practices and capitalism and uh, class poverty, um, the war on drugs, like all of these things started really recognizing, oh my gosh, like the stuff that ties this together as like the foundation of the United States is colonization, um, these doctrines that sort of supported all of the founding of our country, even doctrine of discovery, manifest destiny. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is too big for me. <laughs> um, but once I started putting those pieces together and then even zooming back down to the micro level and viewing uh, my own experiences through the lens of systemic trauma, systemic abuse, systemic abuses of power, um, I just couldn't do it anymore. And um I felt like uh, it somewhat was a privilege for me to leave because um, I know a lot of women in particular where it's not safe for them to leave yet. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing that. I'm also joined by Reverend Dr. Eileen Campbell-Reed. Eileen, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. I'm happy to be with you. Now, I understand that you were ordained as a Southern at a Southern Baptist church in Knoxville. Can you tell me about your personal history with the Southern Baptist denom denomination. Sure, um, it's similar to some stories you've already heard. I grew up in a Southern Baptist congregation in Knoxville and uh, did all the things that Southern Baptists taught us to do, like learn the Bible and sing and go on mission trips and be part of the mission organizations. And that led me to a call to ministry, to wanting to be uh, a person who led the church. And um, 
So I responded to that call as a young person and went to Carson Newman College over in East Tennessee uh, and the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. And during the time I was in college and seminary was the time when the uh, whole Southern Baptist Convention was going through a dramatic schism, a split, um, and no longer uh, was it simply a unified group, but there were major groups who were leaving. And one of the primary issues that the groups who were leaving, the, the Alliance of Baptists and the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, uh, were departing because uh, many reasons and included among top among that list was uh, they these were Baptists like me who believed God really did call women to be ministers as well as men. And that there were a lot of other problems related to uh, Southern Baptist understandings and uh, um, practice around gender and uh, and race and class. And so we, a lot of us decided it, it just couldn't continue to be our lives. And so we formed, I was part of forming some of those new groups uh, and, and uh, remain part of those groups that are no longer Southern Baptist. You know, since you've left, you've written a lot about Southern Baptist clergy women specifically. Yeah. What drew you to that? Well, partly my own experience. Uh, I went to Vanderbilt to study religion, psychology, and culture, and I had in mind to write about and try to understand how was it that uh, women who'd been called to ministry in a denomination that otherwise had no use for their call for ministry to ministry, uh, how had they survived? How had some of them appeared to be thriving in their churches, which by that time in the 2000s, of course, were these alliance and CBF churches, uh, Southern Baptists at that point in time, after the 2000 Baptist faith and message, uh, would expel a church if they ordained or called a woman uh, as a pastor. Mm. Uh, so I was part of these other groups where there were a growing number of pastors. Um, and so I became interested in my doctoral studies in trying to understand the stories of the women and how they thrived, how they coped. Uh, and when I got into the stories, it flipped. I no longer was just thinking about how did these women survive this very difficult Southern Baptist context, but instead, how did their stories give us a new interpretation of what was happening in that Southern Baptist world? Now, I want to understand a few terms. I want to understand comp complementarity and autonomy. What do those right. mean? <laughs> Yeah, well, complementarity is uh, a concept that has been around a long time. It's not just unique to Southern Baptists. Um, Roman Catholics use this term and other evangelical groups use it. It's the idea that uh, is encapsulated in that 2000 Baptist faith and message, which uh, portrays the idea that th there's language about all people being in the image of God and, and equal in the sight of God. But then there's very clear distinctions uh, about how uh, men and women are different in the in this Baptist uh, complementarity understanding. And it, it forms a, it's not just they're different, but that one is necessary to complete the other. That's mm. the complementarity. Mm -hmm. And the idea that women have to be in certain roles, men need to be in certain roles in order for the world to work as God's delegated authority. That's a biblical phrase that's been uh, embraced by complementarians. And uh, the problem with it is that it, it, they talk about it as if this equality and difference can exist, 
uh, and somehow be good for everyone. But in fact, they're both, the whole system is imbued with power. And so guess who always has the power? Well, mm -hmm. the ones who are the men and who have uh, uh, the, the authority from God, they're, they're sort of matched up with God while women are, are related to the church and somehow always to be submissive. Uh, the language of the Baptist faith and message in 2000 was to women, wives were to submit graciously to their husbands. And uh, that's, um, it actually in the end creates uh, this situation that makes abuse of power by men in power much easier. And this is where we are. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Ekelona. We're talking this hour about the Southern Baptist Convention and the recent report that revealed decades of mismanaged sexual abuse allegations. Tiffany, Tiffany Thigpen is still with us. Tiffany, you know, as you grew up in the church, what did you notice about the treatment of women? Um, definitely everything that has just been talked about, I agree with, and that is the teachings of the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, there is definitely an imbalance of power. Um, you know, women definitely have a different temperament, mostly. Um, we also are very intuitive, and um, God gave us a lot of wonderful gifts that could, in so many ways, make for a healthy church. Um, those tend to be squashed, um, push down. We can do that in a Sunday school class, maybe, but there better not be any men in that Sunday school class listening in. Those those types of mentalities. Um, I, I believe that Jesus uh, came to bring freedom. I believe that Jesus' uh, message to the woman at the well um, and other stories in which he really embraced women and elevated women, I think in a lot of ways points to the fact that God values women just as much as he does men, and that there is supposed to be a balance there. But more importantly, I think that overall, as Southern Baptists, as I mentioned earlier when I was speaking, we're not asking them necessarily to change their theology. We're asking that they walk it out. So their theology is that they believe that the scriptures say that we are to be kind to others, and that we are supposed to embrace justice and mercy and love. We're supposed to serve. We're supposed to mend the wounds of the brokenhearted. And there's a lot, a lot of scriptures that point to things that we as women are really, really good at, and men tend to skip over. And um, certainly in these elements of the SBC abuse report and what we've found through all of these years of asking for change, is that indeed this power imbalance at the top uh, led to the SBC not prioritizing help and counsel that could have helped prevent a corrupt group of men from concealing abuses for decades. And um, that's, that's probably the most vital message in all of this. You know, Ashley, you are a trauma recovery coach, and I understand you yourself are a survivor of abuse. I'm curious, how has that experience and your experience within the SBC led you down this path? Mm. So uh, being a trauma survivor and abuse survivor, um, my own healing has led me, and not that healing is a destination, it's like complete or anything like that. But um, my experiences, I felt like I couldn't do anything but walk alongside other folks who are healing from similar abuse and trauma. Um, and 
my my dissertation focused on spiritual trauma, and I I think I'm sort of concluding that all trauma has a spiritual component, uh, as we're you know whole beings, mind, body, soul, spirit, um, whatever words folks are comfortable using for those, um, and the recovery process. Um, it's messy, um, it's difficult, and we're not meant to do it alone. And uh, there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people out there right now that are walking around with spiritual trauma from the SBC. And um, we need each other. We, uh, we need to walk alongside each other and um, support each other on this journey. David on Twitter says, Nashville Lifer here. This is as good as it gets when people tell the truth about where they've been and what they've experienced and who looked the other way. The needle moves. More of this, please. So, Tiffany, how does it make you feel to hear that? It's inspiring because it, it shows that the, the people are listening and that people are realizing that when we bring darkness to light, it matters and it can change things. It, it has the power to change things. Now, Eileen, obviously the report and the release of this secret list of hundreds of abusers within the church seemed like a step in the right direction. But tell me, what will it take to heal these wounds? You got 30 seconds. Well, I'm a person who uh, teaches seminarians how to uh, work with, give trauma-informed care. And it's a long process, as the others in our conversation have been saying, for, toward healing. Uh, as for how the SBC changes, I hope that in Anaheim, they will take a vote that allows money, that allows an independent organization to do the investigations, because the SBC has proven it cannot be trusted to respond appropriately to the women who have come forward. That is Reverend Dr. Eileen Campbell-Reed. She was joined by Tiffany, Tiffany Thigpen and Dr. Ashley David Gavila. Thank you all for being here with us today and sharing your stories with us. Deeply appreciated. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. Tomorrow, what's happening to Music City's indie music venues? Tune in. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Tasha A. of Limley. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos-Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. The masterminds behind our theme music are Lorange and Namir Blade. Special thanks to Reverend Amy Myers, Reverend April Baker, Dr. Ellen Amor, Dr. Bill Leonard, Dr. Robin Hadway, Dr. John Wilkie, Bob Samantha, Holly Meyer, Paige Flager, and of course, Blake Farmer. This is Nashville. I'm Kaliole Colonna. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody, and be good to each other. <laughs>